Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. I'm pleased to welcome to the studio today three guests. We have on the phone with us Beth McGee. She's the Director of Science and Agricultural Policy at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Beth, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We also have Cy Jones. He's a senior fellow here at the World Resources Institute. Cy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lawrence. And Sarah Walker, an associate who leads our work on, uh, I'm going to say, water trading and get it wrong. Beth, uh, Sarah, what should I be saying? <laughs> yeah, water quality trading. Water quality trading. Our, t- our topic today is water quality trading. And the reason we're doing that is WRI has a new paper that Cy and Beth are the lead authors on, Nutrient Trading by Municipal Stormwater Programs in Maryland and Virginia, three case studies. And while that is a mouthful, it's a fascinating topic. I think many of our listeners uh, in the greater Washington area know uh, that the Chesapeake is a national treasure, uh, that it's also in danger. And many of us have heard of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Indeed, some like me are members. So I'm going to start with you, Beth. What is the problem in the Chesapeake Bay that water quality trading might solve? Yeah, thanks, Lawrence. So uh, the Chesapeake Bay is the largest estuary in the United States, and estuary is where freshwater and, and ocean water mix, so we have a variety of of saltiness in our waters. And, and like many water bodies across the U.S. even and even across the world, during the summer it has a large dead zone, an area with not enough oxygen. Um, animals that live in the bay, oysters, crab, striped bass, need oxygen to live, but during every summer we have a large volume of the bay that, that doesn't have enough oxygen to support healthy life. Uh, because of that, primarily because of that water quality problem, Uh, The Environmental Protection Agency, along with all the bay jurisdictions, there are six states and the District of Columbia that have land area that feeds into the Chesapeake Bay, uh, have developed a cap for nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment pollution to the bay. Those are the main pollutants driving that dead zone and some other issues in the bay. And they have been working in earnest since 2010 to implement practices that will reduce loads of nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment into the bay to restore healthy levels of of oxygen and and water clarity. What's the connection between nutrients and oxygen? You mentioned these dead zones. I think a lot of people have heard of them. Uh, Some people might think, oh, the more nutrients that go into the water, the better it is. There'll be more plant life and more animals to eat those plants. Uh, Why are we worried about nitrogen and phosphorus? Right. So the great question we have, uh, right, a, a, a normal amount of nutrients is, is healthy in, in ecological systems. Uh, what we have in the Bay is too much um, coming from sources like wastewater treatment plants, uh, agricultural areas, runoff from our city streets. And what they do when those excess nitrogen and phosphorus enter the Bay, they stimulate um, the single cell plants in the Bay called algae to grow. Um, and that in and of itself can be a problem if we have dense blooms of algae. Some of them are toxic, but more importantly, the link to dissolved oxygen is when the algae die, they sink to the bottom, and they're decomposed by bacteria, and that uses up oxygen in the water. So that is why we have, there's that link between uh, too much nutrients, algae blooms, and dead zones. And as you mentioned, dead zones is not only a problem here. I've seen a map of the world, and there's, of course, a big dead zone at the mouth of the Mississippi River. There's a dead zone at the mouth of the Nile. I'm guessing there are plenty of dead zones at the mouth of the Chinese rivers, which are heavily laden with um, nutrients. Uh, So it's really a global problem. Absolutely. Sarah, as a specialist in trading, 
Can you explain to us why we think that trading in water quality rights might be a good way to address this problem? Some people might think, just limit this stuff, require jurisdictions to clean it up, whether it's in sewage treatment plants or stormwater runoff or from farms, capture the uh, nutrients, don't let them go into the water, done. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, and I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. So nutrient trading is, is a market-based mechanism um, for cost-effectively meeting water quality goals. So it does work hand-in-hand -hand with those caps, those regulations. It just provides a more flexible way to achieve those goals. So it's based on the fact that um, sources of, of nutrients will face different mitigation costs and um, sources that have high costs to reduce nitrogen or phosphorus could purchase nutrient reductions or credits from sources that have lower costs. And so those uh, regulated sources that face that cap would have greater flexibility, can save some money. The other sources that provide the actual reductions can generate revenue, and still we meet our water quality goals at the end of the day. Economists love this stuff. They love markets. Uh, I'm not an economist, but uh, I play one on the radio. I've worked with a lot of economists. And what I know about this uh, trading is that Resources for the Future first proposed it as a mechanism to address acid rain because of the sulfur that was coming uh, out from the smokestacks. Do I see people disagreeing with that? That's my understanding, is that it was, and it was applied quite successfully. Some people remember the acid rain problem, the lakes becoming more acidic, and they introduced a cap, they introduced trading, there was a proven technology, which were scrubbers to remove the sulfur. Lo and behold, the sulfur content came down. Based on that, people thought, great, let's do this for carbon, and as far as I can tell, it hasn't worked. Uh, Europe has, of course, a cap-and-trade emissions trading scheme, but they gave away so many permits they haven't been able to get the price up to a proper level. We tried to pass cap-and-trade here. We were un unable to get it passed. What makes you think that a cap-and-trade mechanism for water quality, for nutrient runoff, would work when it hasn't worked for carbon? Well, that's a good question. Um, so water, water is very different than carbon, um, for one thing. Um, it's very local. And so we're seeing these programs develop that are targeted to very specific watersheds. Um, and it, maybe for that reason, it's easier to get um, stakeholders involved and, and really get buy-in from the communities that, that all share this common, um, this common issue. Um, so hopefully we, we will see the success that we saw with the acid rain program. Um, I think they saw compliance costs cut by roughly half uh, with the ability to trade those um, sulfur dioxide credits. And uh, WI has estimated similar savings for regulated sources um, for wastewater treatment plants, for example, um, that could save um, you know, significant amounts of money by being able to trade. I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned local. I'm going to come to you, Sai, because one of the things that surprised me about the paper, although in hindsight it seemed logical, is that in these three jurisdictions that you studied, three counties, one in Virginia and two in Maryland, to the extent that authorities were interested in trading, they wanted the money to remain local. So Arlington is willing to take some money that would have gone into stormwater runoff, which is, I gather, a more expensive thing to ameliorate, and buy credits from their own sewage treatment plant. So they want the money to stay at home, which is quite different, I think, than in, say, the, the, uh, the acid rain trading. That's true. I would characterize it more as a preference um, than, than an absolute requirement. Um, 
Um, Arlington County had no choice. It has no agricultural area, so, um, but it had a wastewater treatment plant that is producing tens of thousands of credits per year because it's overperforming compared to its permit uh, and will well into the future. So it was a source of credits within in the, uh, the county itself. If the county had agricultural areas, we would have looked, they would have asked us to look uh, for agricultural credits as well, which really everybody is interested in that. It, that's the component that hasn't developed well in trading programs. There's been a lot of trading between wastewater treatment plants, point sources and point sources, but successful trading between point sources and agriculture has been much more problematic throughout the, all the trading programs in the U.S. There are some, but not a lot. I want to back up for a minute. You've been working on water quality trading for many years. Was there something in this study that surprised you? <laughs> Sorry, just how long it took. How, <laughs> how, uh, not really how slowly the wheels of state government and county government moved was, I mean, the study was supposed to be two years and it ended up five years. And a large part of that was the very slow movement of the counties and particularly the state of Maryland, um, Maryland Department of the Environment that really, um, I mean, we were, we were ahead of the, head of development of trading uh, fully in Maryland. Uh, one of the reasons we did this study was to push policy and regulation development in Maryland, and we were par partially success successful in doing that, uh, which I guess surprises me. Um, we achieved some successes with MDE early on, uh, getting changes in policies, um, uh, because we and our three county partner, two county partners in Maryland, asked for them. Um, other than that, no, um, no real surprises. Well, that you know, hey, that Lawrence, comes. Lawrence, uh, can uh, I yeah, jump please, in on that Beth, one? go ahead. So um, one thing that surprised me, you know, I want to take a step back and say why a lot of people were looking at the Chesapeake Bay as sort of where trading could happen. And it has to do with that, that what happened in 2010 with the capping established for the Chesapeake uh, with detailed plans being developed by the states to figure out how to meet that cap. And that's sort of unlike anywhere um, else in the country. And we also had an environmental protection agency that was really trying to hold the states accountable for achieving those pollution reductions. So really important in making cap and trade work as a firm cap. Um, but the other reason people were interested in the Chesapeake Bay initially is because they looked at this big watershed, six states, the District of Columbia. If you're thinking about a market, um, the bigger the market, the more, you know, the more likely the prices will be um, economical. And so everyone's kind of initially looking at sort of a baywide trading scheme. Um, and, and there was a study that came out um, a few years ago that suggested, looked at, at trading at various scales within state, within a major basin, across the Chesapeake, and it really didn't um, show that the the big cost savings really were the trades between municipal areas where it's really expensive to get pollution reductions uh, and agriculture. Um, but when you kind of scoped back and looked at a baywide trading scheme, that's not where the real um, economic efficiencies came in. And, and personally, I was surprised by that because sort of the thinking going in had been this baywide trading um, program, and really the real the benefits could be accrued largely at the state level. I was certainly struck in reading the paper. It comes through it at sort of how slowly the wheels turn and a bit of the chicken and egg problem. I, and you mentioned, Beth, that, you know, the EPA was very interested in this. Of course, we all know that the EPA is under attack now. 
Uh, I think under the Obama administration, there was a lot of leadership on the Chesapeake Bay. Um, in the absence of that sort of uh, leadership to solve a problem, do you think that um, trading can take off? Sarah? I think so. I, I think trading, because it's not solely reliant on command and control, it is looking at more flexible mechanisms. And so um, we like to think it's, it's a, a mechanism that both sides of the aisle could get behind. Um, and I think we have seen support um, here in the Chesapeake Bay watershed at the state and local levels. It's, it's interesting you mentioned both sides getting behind. I was surprised in reading the paper, if I understood it correctly, to see that Virginia evidently has better legislation in place to encourage trading. Generally, as a Virginian living in Arlington, I think of most of the state as being a laggard behind Maryland in most environmental issues. But I'm wondering if maybe the Republicans who control the legislature in Richmond think, oh, yeah, trading, it sounds like a market. We think we might like that. And that they were willing to go ahead where Maryland wasn't. Am I, am I imagining too much into this, side? No, you're absolutely right. And in fact, that uh, uh, Virginia was a national leader um, in developing a trading program, a comprehensive trading program, starting back in 2004 or five, under uh, two consecutive Republican administrations, strong support um, it w because the wastewater community, the wastewater treatment plants, um, uh, the Virginia Association of Municipal Wastewater Agencies went to the legislature and said, we need a trading program because they could see the enormous costs coming to meet the Bay nutrient reduction requirements, enormous costs to them, um, the wastewater treatment community. So and they were interested in trading and went to the legislature and the legislature responded extremely well and passed the first trading bill and then passed a second one in 2012 that brought in stormwater uh, to be able to trade as well and uh, an, a, a trading program for land developers who need to offset increases in nutrient loads that they cause with their development. So probably the most progressive state in the country on developing trading programs. Very interesting. It sounds like one of a, a very rare example of a left-right coalition because, of, of course, Arlington is extremely uh, progressive and democratic, but it sounds like with the, the trading uh, framework in place, which the Republicans have been interested in because they like markets, that right. enabled Arlington to proceed. Right, exactly. And that's one of the points we make in the paper about having um, uh, uh, having sound trading policy and regulation in place and um, also stormwater permitting strategy that facilitates trading. Both of those exist in Virginia. They do not exist in Maryland yet. Uh, Beth, what do you see as the prospects in other states? You mentioned six states around the Chesapeake, Maryland and beyond Maryland. Are there other places that you see that might um, be moving in this direction more quickly than others? Well, Pennsylvania is the other um, big state feeding into the Chesapeake, and they've had a trading program for probably as long as Maryland and Virginia. Um, but I think all will be agreed that their their program had some serious problems in accountability, and, and they sort of bent over backwards to try to make it work, and at the expense, I think, of some 
um, protections that, that many would like to see. So they're sort of rebooting um, their trading program um, as we speak uh, to make it, I think, uh, something that EPA and others would agree to. And the other states have, you know, sort of, I mean, probably uh, Sarah could speak better to what the other states are doing. They're, they're interested, but um, for whatever reason, we haven't seen a, a lot of activity um, from the other states, maybe because their, their Bay share is smaller. But um, Sarah, what do you think about that? Yeah, there, there are a lot of programs um, in the country. There's maybe about a dozen states that either have some kind of policy or guidance in place, um, maybe another 10 to 12 who are considering trading um, or developing programs. And then there are many uh, watershed-specific, um, very site-specific programs um, that are operating. Um, but I do think the Chesapeake Bay is is one big area that a lot of people have their eyes on. Is there similar discussion going uh, on around the massive Mississippi watershed? There are a few states in the Mississippi River Basin who are considering trading. Um, and actually, WRI did a, a economic feasibility study a few years ago for the Mississippi River Basin, looking at uh, trying to meet nutrient reductions for um, the Gulf hypoxia issue. And we saw huge economic potential for trading there. Um, we're going to wrap up. I have two uh, questions in the end. One, and I'm not sure who's best place to talk about this, so you, know, you all look for a volunteer, is talk to me about this in a global context. I think we've uh, I understood before we started recording that the Chesapeake is seen as a lead. Where else in the world? is their interest? Where would you expect to see this popping up? And who should we target this podcast? To which audience, once it's been recorded and edited and written up, where should we be marketing this to say, hey, there's this thing called uh, water quality trading you might want to look at? Well, there's interest, like I mentioned, in Australia and New Zealand. But the most interest by far is in China. Um, in fact, China's asked the World Bank to do a study that includes looking at water quality trading as a mechanism to include in next, their next five-year plan to help um, uh, reduce eutrophication and water pollution. Um, so there's, been a, there's a lot of work going on by Chinese researchers and academics, uh, lots of pilot programs, um, lots of work. WRI, we ourselves, our, our China office did a trading feasibility study at the request of the Asian Development Bank for uh, for controlling nitrogen discharges to Chow Lake in China, which is one of the three top priority lakes. So um, target should be China to, to directly you know, answer your that, question. That is fascinating, Sai, because one of the things I'm looking at in my role as VP for communications is what should we translate it into which languages. And you're making me think maybe we should put a little bit of money into translating this paper uh, into Chinese because, you know, it doesn't need to be read by thousands, but if it's read by the proper, you know, couple of hundred people, uh, it could be quite useful to them. Sarah, the other question I had is, where are we going in the water quality work uh, in WRI? I know, uh, as with everything else, it's a little bit constrained by budget, let's, but let's assume that there wasn't a budget constraint. You know, somebody came along and said, Sarah, here's a million dollars to work on wa water quality trading. What would you do next? That's a good question. Um, I've got a number of things on my wish list. Um, one would be digging into this question of um, demand for trading. Um, as we've talked about, we see great potential for trading, um, but not as much activity as we would like. So um, I would love to dig into that and, 
and better understand you know, what's holding people back, um, what's holding regulators back, or what's holding um, those permitted entities back from really engaging in this and, and realizing these benefits that, that we're envisioning. It's a sort of a political economy question when exactly. you say demand for trading. It sounds like economics, but it's also under un, untangling what are the barriers exactly. and, and why aren't the people who want to do this getting on with it. Exactly, yeah. Beth, I'm going to give you the last comment since you're uh, on the phone. And uh, I'm wondering, uh, obviously, Chesapeake Bay Foundation uh, is a large organization with a lot of members. Not all of them are going to be interested in nutrient trading. But I'm wondering what the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's thoughts are in carrying this work forward. So, uh, yeah, thanks for the question. You know, we're we're sort of agnostic of how we get the pollution reductions to the bay. We just want them to happen. And one thing that drove us towards looking at trading as one tool in the toolbox is the large costs associated with getting pollution reductions from urban areas and really looking to see what can we do to bring those costs down. And, and trading is very appealing in that regard. So um, there, as, as we talked about, I think a little bit, there's a lot of skepticism in the environmental community about sort of cap and trade in, in general and certainly in water quality trading because of uh, potential to not have reductions that are real. Uh, but our interest really is to look at uh, every tool in the toolbox, and we think trading is a tool that's definitely worth exploring. Well, it certainly sounds worth exploring to me. I want to thank you, um, Beth McGee, Cy Jones, and Sarah Walker for joining me on today's podcast. It's been really nice chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you, Lawrence. Working paper, Nutrient Trading by Municipal Stormwater Programs in Maryland and Virginia, Three Case Studies. And while the title is a bit of a mouthful, the study itself is actually remarkably uh, interesting. I find the three case studies in the counties that are described to be uh, really interesting. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. You can find this and other WRI podcasts on Stitcher and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Lawrence McDonald. Thanks very much.